Hey everybody, welcome back to the Reclamation Podcast, where our goal is to help you reclaim good practices for faith and life. Today is episode 63 of the podcast, and I have the privilege of sitting down with author and pastor Jay Kim. Now, Jay is the author of Analog Church, and he takes us on a journey of what it looks like to put down digital fatigue and pick up the human experience. I I think given the COVID world that we're living in, this is such an interesting word for us because it really points us back to the human relationship. He talks about three basic ideas as it pertains to human experience versus digital fatigue. That's worship, community, and scripture. I think you're going to love this conversation. If you ever feel like you've been zoomed out or you're just tired of all of the the screens that we look at and everything else, I think this is a really, really good conversation. It was challenging for me because I love the digital. So I hope you you get a ton out of this conversation. The best compliment that you can give us is to share this with a friend, tell somebody about the podcast, maybe uh, share us on social media as well. If you're ready to become part of the Reclamation community, then I want to challenge you. Text the word RECLAIM to 66866. Text the word RECLAIM to 66866 so you can sign up, become part of the community. Don't miss any of our blogs, our podcasts, or anything that's going on. We are so excited to share this stuff with you. Now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Jay Kim. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited today to be here with um, author and pastor Jay Kim, who recently came out with the book Analog Church. Jay, thank you so much for being here uh, today and, and joining us on the Reclamation Podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, the people that know me are going to find this conversation to be really interesting because I am a techie. I need to just <laughs> confess that up front. Like, I'm super tech. And um, in the Methodist church, I'm one of the, uh, we're one of the churches that kind of leans into the digital more than others. Hmm. Um, and one of the things that I've appreciated as I've, I've kind of gotten to look at some of your stuff is that you've been really open about the irony of this book coming out in this season. <laughs> yeah. Right, because it's so it's an it's a, a book about the analog church and the importance of human connection in the midst of uh, of COVID. Yeah. H- how um, how have you been processing that? I, I know you did some stuff on Instagram the other day that I thought was really good, and I wondered if you might share some of that thought process with us. Yeah, um, man. Well, you'll have to uh, refresh my memory on which Instagram post. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's um, right. about about how the connection now might be more important than ever before. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the irony is definitely not lost on me that, you know, this is so strange to be releasing a book like this. And the book's been out now as we're recording this. The book's been out for about two and a half months. But uh, the release date of the book was March 31st. So um, it was like two and a half or three weeks after, at least in my part of the world in California, we had started sheltering in place. So uh, I had several conversations with um, my publisher about that. And ultimately we just, you know, we had to laugh about it. <laughs> like we did that, that was not a part of the marketing plan to release a book on uh, analog um, in the midst of a global pandemic that would force us to be all digital, you know? Uh, but yeah, you know what you're talking about, I've, I've posted this and, and talked about this, um, in different places actually in the last couple of months, you know, I'm actually in hindsight, quite grateful to have been able to release this book, um, into the world during this time in particular, because if there was anything that I would have wanted to say specifically 
in this moment, in the midst of COVID-19, when we're all completely digital, basically, and all of our connections are online, um, you know, this book is what I would have wanted to say. Uh, And what I mean by that is, you know, we're all beginning to feel it. In fact, many of us, I think, have been feeling it for a while now. But there is, and I've read articles about this from, you know, psychologists and uh, different people, Um, there is a very real phenomenon called digital fatigue, you know, Mm -hmm. that is starting to settle in. And uh, I don't know that I would consider myself a techie like, like you, Tony, but, uh, but I do appreciate technology quite a bit, you know, and I think that's a misunderstanding people have about the book. They think without reading the book that I'm arguing for no tech and everyone go, you know, become a Luddite or Amish or something. And that's certainly not what I'm doing. I have a deep appreciation for technology and digital technology. I just, I'm arguing for putting it in the right place, but, um, but, but it's also becoming really clear when digital connection is the only form of connection we have, something feels extremely off kilter for us as embodied human beings. And, uh, you know, so in that sense, um, I'm glad we were able to release this book at this time to hopefully give some voice and some language to some of the angst and disconnect that we're feeling right now. Well, it feels like an important voice in this conversation for the church and for in individual Christians, because as we now look down the lens of what it means to come back to church, uh, I think pastors all over the nation are seeing record low attendance because people are scared and people have become um, complacent about watching church in their PJs and all the great things that come with, with access. Um, but the truth is, is while this is an important voice, it didn't start during this time period so, I, you know, I'm curious, what birthed this project for you? Where did this born from? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I've lived basically my entire life here in the Silicon Valley, uh, uh, the Bay Area of California, sort of the epicenter of digital technology. You know, I, uh, my mom and I lived with my uncle's family for several years when I was growing up when I was a really young boy, and he worked for IBM for decades. Mm. So uh, I remember we had the big old clunky IBM computers, uh, a couple of them in the house. And so I've always been surrounded by that sort of technology. And then, of course, you know, it's been hyper accelerated in the last couple of decades from where I live, my home, you know, it's a 10 minute drive to the Apple campus. It's a 20 minute drive to Google, a 25 minute drive to Facebook, you know, their main campuses, right? So I live in the epicenter. And what that means is that I'm surrounded by people, people in my family, my circles of friends, so many people in our church who um, every single day, at least, you know, they're nine to five, Monday to Friday, is uh, is creating the stuff that all of us carry around in our back pockets and, and lose ourselves into as we sit at our desks and our offices, you know, all of this digital technology. I'm surrounded by people who make this stuff. And so um, I've always been fascinated by it. I've always been interested in it, uh, just as an observer, you know, and I've, uh, I've always... I don't know what it was, but, I, but I've always had questions about um, the deeper implications of how digital technologies might be influencing and impacting us uh, just as human beings and how it might be influencing and impacting human experience as a whole. Mm. Um, and then that, that sort of intersected with my life as a pastor and as a church leader. You know, I've been serving and leading in local churches full-time for the last 16 years or so. 
And probably about five or six years ago, specifically, I really began to question, um, as I was watching more and more churches sort of lean heavily into the digital revolution, meaning they were, you know, just basically trying to leverage any and all digital technologies at their disposal for the sake of, you know, relevance and reach and impact and all those sorts of things. And I'm not saying any of that is bad, but I just began to question like, okay, if we're just sort of like thoughtlessly, carelessly leveraging these technologies without thinking about, how the use of these technologies might be impacting and influencing the way we understand what it means to be the church, it seems like there could be uh, some cause for concern there. And so I just started to explore quite a bit more at that point, uh, about five or six years ago, not thinking that it was going to become a book, just thinking through the lens of being a church leader and a pastor and, and wondering how this might be impacting our ecclesiology. And then that just sort of grew from there. And uh, a couple of friends of mine who've written and published books were super encouraging. They're like, hey, man, this seems like a book. You know, this seems like something that could be an important part of the conversation on a broader level. And so there you go. Here we are. <laughs> no, I, I, I love that. I love that. And I, I think um, what I appreciate is that it, it started from a kind of a pastor's heart. And mm-hmm. and in the course of the book, you talk about different parts of the um the, the church community experience in terms of, of worship community and scripture. Yeah. But if, if you were talking to somebody in your church today who, who's struggling to put technology in the right place, what's the, um, what's the filter in which we look at that lens? Yeah. That, um, you know, I, there's a lot there. That's a really great question. And we could do a deep dive there. I think probably the most succinct way I would put it, and this is what I say in the book um, and I'm, I'm applying it specifically to the way we think about church, but I think it applies to uh, just our lives um, as a whole. So when I looked at it, I thought, I thought, man, this is this could be about discipleship. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Right, like yeah. this is about what making disciples and life on life and Jesus, and that kind of gets me fired up. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And one of the opening chapters is about that, how this impacts our, our discipleship. But yeah, the, the lens I use is, you know, digital is great for um, the exchange of information. Mm-hmm. So if you want to inform someone or a group of people about anything, then by all means, leverage digital. Um, and, you know, the reality is there's a lot in our churches that involves the exchange of information. That's a really important part of, of, you know, participating in the life of the church. You've got to know specific bits of information to know how to participate in pragmatic ways. But if the goal is not the exchange of information, but rather if the goal is transformation, like actual, and you got, you, you um, hit it, you know, just a moment ago, the, the word in, Uh, the Bible would be discipleship, right? Being formed into the image and likeness of Christ together. If the goal is transformation, then I would suggest that the approach has to be analog, that transformation happens in embodied, the theological word is incarnational, you know, in the flesh, shoulder to shoulder, communal, showing up, even though it's inconvenient and hard, 
Um, that's how transformation happens. So that's the filter I use for my life and for our church. You know, if the goal here with this particular thing is to inform people, then totally, let's just leverage digital and it'll be great. But if the goal with this particular thing is to, is to invite people into the transformation process, then we can't end it digital. We can use digital to inform them of the pragmatics of, of it, but ultimately they have to show, we have to invite people to show up and do the work in embodied participatory ways. So uh, one of the guys, uh, uh, we're Methodists, and so one of the guys that, that I meet with, I have a band meeting and we get together and we confess sins and it's, mm. it's horrible uh, mm. and, and wonderful all at the same time, right? Yeah. And uh, we were just talking about why disciple making is so hard. And one of the things that we both agree on is that it, it cuts to the core of our, of our very weaknesses. Mm. Why is living um, intentionally analog life or, or analog relationships so difficult? Yeah, it's difficult because uh, it's inefficient. You know, it's um, the, the differentiation. One of the key differentiations between an analog life and a digital life is that a digital life, meaning your online existence, the entire experience is um, controlled by you, hmm. you know, it's curated to your preferences and to your personality and your likes and your dislikes. What I mean by that is, you know, if you think about any of your social media feeds, the reality is it takes one click of a button, like half a second for you to essentially follow or unfollow anybody, you know? Yeah. So if you're scrolling through Twitter and somebody you follow says something that offends you, it literally will take you less than a second to no longer follow that person. In other words, no longer have that person within the circle of your sort of Twitter sphere, you know? And that's true for uh, just about any social media and, and most online experiences. And in fact, now, you know, it's machine algorithms that are even curating our online experiences for us. We don't even have to do the work. The machines just sort of curate what we see online to our liking and to our preferences, you know? Um, analog community showing up is so different. You know, when you show up to a church, when you show up to your church, whoever's listening, whatever church you're a part of, when you show up, the chances are the, in the room that you're in, whether it's a big room with, you know, a thousand people or a small room with a few dozen people, whatever the size of your church, the chances are very high that there are at least a few people, if not many people in that room that you would not, based on your own personality and preferences, you would not necessarily have chosen that. <laughs> Come on, that'll preach. Part of your church experience, you yeah. know, your church community. And yet here you are, you know, and uh, that's a crucially important part of the discipleship process. It's what Jesus himself models. You know, if you think about the 12 young men who followed Jesus around were his closest compatriots, you know, over the course of his three years of earthly ministry. And you look at that list of young men, those are not guys who would have in and of themselves chosen one another to be best buds. You know, there's a zealot in there with a tax collector, which I mean, come on, that's like, you know, think about the most conservative Republican, you know, and the most liberal Democrat, you know, and multiply their differences by a thousand, you know, and you have zealots and tax collectors. Um, 
So uh, that's, that's one of the reasons why I think analog community and showing up in embodied ways, even though it's inefficient, even though it's not necessarily to our liking, is so important in the transformation and formational process of being made into the image of Christ together as his people. As church leaders look at the potential reach and scalability of the digital world, I mean, that, that's what I hear over and over again through a lot of church leaders. Look at the reach and evangelism and then, you know, like, how do you, um, I, and I know that you're not saying that you're, you're not, a, you're definitely not against any of those things. I, I've heard mm-hmm. you say that and that's obvious in your platform, but how, how do you uh, sell the other side for me? It's exactly what you said. I I am not against digital. I just think that digital is the front door. And um, the reality is, you know, if you think about your home uh, and you think about, uh, you know, what you really long for in meaningful relationships, the front door is a great place to say hello to the UPS guy as he drops off a package, you know, and then he's off. Right. Um, But if a dear friend of mine, somebody, or, or, or even more than that family, you know, a family member came over. In fact, later today, my mother, you know, is going to come and swing by because she hasn't seen her grandkids, my kids in uh, three and a half, three months or so. Oh, wow. Today's a big day then. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when she comes, um, the reality is, you know, she's not the UPS guy. We're not going to have her linger just at the front door. You know, she'll come in and, uh, you know, come into, she'll enter into much more intimate, meaningful spaces like the kitchen and the dining table and the living room on the sofa where we can really share some time and, and um, some space together. So that's what I think of when I think of digital versus analog. I think digital is a fantastic front door, yeah. meaning it's a wonderful in, initiating space. But if it just ends there, you know, if we're like, man, digital, just go all digital because look at the metrics, you know, we had 12,000 views on our Facebook live stream or whatever. There are multiple problems with that. First of all, those metrics, not just Facebook, but all metrics are, um, are they're, they're really fascinating because uh, it's difficult to, to, measure engagement when the way you're measuring engagement is simply based on whether they clicked the video or not. There's no way to know simply because the video was playing without the embodied exchange of our presence with one another. There is no way to know if the person on the other side is like really intently listening, leaning in, leaning back. I don't know if the person got up and made himself a sandwich for 20 minutes during whatever. I mean, who knows, right? The reality is for us in our home, we have two young children, um, five and almost two. And so we watch uh, our Sunday worship gathering on our TV every single Sunday uh, at the same time, right? At 11 a.m. when it plays. We watch it every Sunday. However, I'll tell you this, like I'm, I'm paying attention at probably 10% of my normal sort of attention rate because my two little kids are running around and they want a glass of water and some snacks and now they're fighting over that toy. And you know what I mean? Like, so it's not, it's not the sort of engagement that you would have in a room where I can see the person sitting there leaning in or leaning out, leaning back or whatever. 
And the reality is even that is a little bit skewed because I don't know what's going on in their mind. You know, they're probably distracted sure. thinking about what they're going to have for lunch or whatever. But there is a difference. You know, the embodied exchange is very different. So in so many ways, sort of the reach and impact, I get it. I think if we're talking about digital as a means of opening the front door to more people, to inviting them into the journey, then absolutely. I think that's wonderful. But it cannot stop there. We can't be satisfied with, hey, we had you know 12,000 views on our video, and that's great. We're making an impact. No, that's 12,000 opportunities to continue inviting those folks into not just the front door, but past the front door into the living room and the dining table where we can really do formational stuff together as we become the family of God together. I, I uh, have a fair amount of pastors who listen to the podcast, and I know that you're a local church pastor. And uh, one of the things that I'm really struggling with is how we evaluate success in the church. Um, what are your thoughts on how we shift the metrics from views to gathering around the, the table? Any thoughts on how to do that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are wonderful people out there um, who, who've uh, written extensively about that in ways that, you know, I, I can't even scratch the surface of, of their brilliance. Um, you know, the first person who comes to mind, one who's been so hyper influential for me, someone I quote in the book several times would be Dallas Willard. Sure. I think Willard talks a lot about um, the journey of following Jesus and the formational process of being made into Christ likeness being the goal rather than simply checking a box or attendance or whatever, although attendance is important and, and all those things. Um, but yeah, I mean, if I can speak into that just very briefly, I, I think that uh, some of the shifts have to be made uh, in terms of our success metrics away from attendance um, and toward engagement. And that's not an original idea for me. There are lots of sort of church leadership guys out there who are writing the same thing, you know? And so uh, I, I would just, I would lean more and more in that direction. And engagement means lots of things. There are some things that I think are universal to the Christian church, you know? Um, but there are some uh, components of engagement that are going to be really unique to your particular local context. Hmm. Uh, and I think all church leaders need to, to be mindful and creative in thinking about those things. How do we engage people in the process of um, participating creatively and actively participating on the journey of becoming like Christ together as his people, rather than simply measuring success by, Sunday attendance or how many people, you know, got baptized, although baptism is a huge metric, you know, sure. but um, again, that even is one part of a longer journey. And I think uh, whatever the rest of that journey looks like in your local context, we have to start measuring success. Now that word is even kind of tricky to me, you know, but it comes um, with a whole bag of tension for me, right? Like yeah. Yeah. So, um, but I, but I do think, you know, engagement in the journey and in the process of participating in the, in the process of becoming like Christ together is we have to begin measuring those things. Well, and, and to go back to your earlier point, if everything that we're going to do is based on relationships, once we get them in the door, then, then the leeway to, to, to actually take a good measurement should be significantly longer. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah it's, right. I mean, it, it would have to be longer if we're talking about real relationships and engagement because mm-hmm. the relationship building process takes, you know, months, years sometimes. Yeah, um, that's now, exactly right. Yeah. yeah, when I think about my young kids, it's like, how do I know I've succeeded as a parent? Well, the reality is, again, they're five and two, almost two. It's like, I'm not going to know. You know, I'm not going to know, prob- I'm not going to have that feeling probably until they're, you know, grown adults and sort of con- contributing to society and following Jesus faithfully and all those sorts of things. So in the meantime, I can, I can um, celebrate the small wins, you know, when something clicks for them, mm-hmm. when they make a change or they grow into a, another level of maturity as young children, I can, I can. I can uh, celebrate those things, but ultimately, like in terms of like, I did it, I succeeded in raising good children. I, there's no way. I'm just not going to know. It's a long journey. You know, I'm not going to know for decades, probably. So if ever, I don't know. So there you go. Yeah, that's just to sort of support what you just said. No, I, I love it. And I, I did want to ask about the kids in terms of like, uh, how, how do you and your wife balance digital fatigue and and just the reality that I mean true confession all three of my kids have various screens that are I'm going to use air quotes theirs we remind them (laughs) that they don't own them but right like you know they've got their own cases on it (laughs) so it certainly I I I don't know as a parent I live in that tension how how do we how do we balance digital fatigue in a digital world yeah, it's a great question. You know, there are a couple of people that come to mind who've written um, fantastic sort of Jesus-centered. There's lots of secular work on this, obviously, um, some of which I cite in the book. But a couple of friends, actually, who've written great books about this from a Jesus perspective. One would be Andy Crouch, mm-hmm. uh, wrote a book called TechWise Family, where he, you know, deep dives into some of this stuff, the role of technology in uh, a family setting, particularly a family that's trying to cultivate uh, wisdom and, and courage. Um, and then uh, John Mark Comer wrote a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It's not necessarily about technology and families, but there's lots of principles in there that I think people have found incredibly helpful when it comes to the role of tech uh, in their own lives and the lives of their children. Yeah. For us, you know, I, I've taken a lot actually from Andy Crouch um, in his book, but we, uh, we just try to limit screen time and even television time in our home. And we've created a rhythm for our kids. So our five-year-old, our two-year-old doesn't know, sure, you know sure. what's going on. He just kind of r- rolls with it. But for our five-year-old um, we've just created a rhythm where she knows. So, you know, um, Friday nights are movie nights. So she gets to pick a movie, um, you know, from a list of movies. Oh, it's Friday night. What are you guys picking? Do you know yet? Uh, yeah. She wants to watch Monsters University. Tonight. Oh, that's, that's not, that's, I mean, as, a, for, as far as dads go, right? That's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's palatable. But it's also her favorite movie. It's, she goes in phases every six months. She'll change her favorite movie, and that's her favorite movie right now. So this will be like my fourth time watching it in the last Oh, month. all right. Well, never mind. <laughs> Less palatable. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So anyways, Friday night's movie night, and then um, uh, that's it. We don't let her use the phone or an iPad. Well, we let her use the iPad uh, on Saturday afternoons when her hmm. brother sleeping and she can do some you know draw she likes using the drawing app on the ipad 
Uh, and then right now, because of COVID-19, you know, she's in preschool. Her preschool has Zoom class right now twice a day at 9.45 and at 3 o'clock. So she's on Zoom twice a day. But uh, that's it. We just we try to sort of limit it, you know. Um, but she's also five. So we'll, it'll get it'll change as she grows older and probably more complex. I tell you, one of the hardest things about parenting now is I've got a 14-year-old young man who is a godly man. Um, but he's also 14 and he's got a cell phone and we, we like the fact that he has a cell phone, but it's so, so hard to engage it. I, I don't know. It's just a, it's a d- difficult tension to live into about what's the right balance of that. Yeah. 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 Crouch gets into it. He actually has an interesting idea. He says he doesn't uh, monitor or put limits on how much time his kids and his kids are older as well. Teenagers, mm-hmm. I think he doesn't put limits on how much time they spend on their phones, which I thought was fascinating. What he monitors and puts limits on is um, what they're using their phone for. So he uh, does have limits on how much uh, you can spend on social media, how much you can spend on, you know, whatever, watching a movie or uh, those sorts of things, you know, Um, which I thought was fascinating. So uh, for me, you know, I'm not in that stage of life yet where my kids have phones. So I'll be looking to you, Tony. Not not me. I'll be looking to (laughs) to Andy Crouch. (laughs) Well, and I, I I mean, the reality is, and and you would know better than I would, is that everything's changing so fast, right? And you live in, you live in an environment that's changing. I always find that the the coasts seem to change faster than the, the, middle of the country where I'm from. Mm-hmm. And so you guys will have hologram phones by the time the year oldest has got, it'll be like boop, up right in your hand, you know, totally. yeah, somebody can cyber true. bully you from the, from the palm oh, of your hand. Scary. <laughs> Frightening. Yeah. Uh, what, one of the things that you do in the book that I really appreciate is you, you kind of talk about the difference between um, the digital and the analog for those three areas that I mentioned, the worship community and, and scripture um, w- would you mind kind of walking us through the the scripture part specifically? Because I uh, I think that that's a pretty profound realization about you know kind of how to read a book. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know uh, what I'm not arguing for in the section on scripture is that you should only read paper Bibles and not right. have, you know Bibles on your phone. Um, I've been asked that question a few times. Like, oh, so you're against like the Bible app on your phone? I'm like, no, I'm not at all. You know, I have it on my phone and and most of the time I'm reading my paper Bible, but yeah, sometimes on occasion uh, I'll use the app on my phone and I think that's perfectly fine. So that's not at all what I'm arguing. Um, Actually what, what I'm trying to get at is that the digital age and in particular um, the different extremely popular uh, online mediums and digital mediums that engage our attention um, in the digital age, things like social media, Twitter, even the way news feeds run in the digital age, particularly mm. on our phones, but even on your laptop or whatever, um, the ways in which those realities are impacting, and I would suggest deconstructing our aptitude and our appetite for long format reading. I think that's the greatest concern for me. And for the Christian, that's actually incredibly concerning because um, you know, the late theologian Larry Hurtado uh, says that cr- Christianity has always been a bookish faith. And what he meant by that uh, was that we've always been a people of the book, meaning um, 
we have always been a people who have found our story come to life through the narrative of scripture. Um, the 66 profoundly beautiful and complex and difficult, you know, books that make up the library uh, of books that we call the Bible. Um, these are, these stories are central to, to how we understand who we are, who God is and what he's up to in the world and in our lives and what he's calling us to. Right. So we don't worship the Bible, but the God we worship, we come to see him more clearly and see our part to play in his unfolding story most clearly through the Bible. Right. So uh, my concern is that because in the digital age, even on a neurological level, we are actually being trained to read in short format text, meaning, you know, think about Twitter, for example, yeah. like you're scrolling through 280 character tweets, 280 characters. It's like, that's a couple of sentences, you know, 280 character tweets that are trying to like, like if you have to communicate something in that short uh, context, that short of a context, what you have to do is leverage your words toward shock value, toward yeah. attention grabbing, you know, that sort of thing. That's very different than long format reading. If you read, a re not even the Bible, but if you read like a really good novel, you know, if you find yourself in, you know, like a Cormac McCarthy book or something, you're not going to, you're not going to read like shock value, attention grabbing sentences on page one, you're going to read pages and pages about the color of the leaves, you know, like I'm just using McCarthy as an right. example, but like, it's going to take you a long time to get to a place where you really appreciate the depth and the nuance of what's happening in the story. But when you get to that place, what you realize is you've gone to like much greater depths in your reading than you ever do on Twitter or on social media, or even like on, you know, the news that you read on your phone. And that's my concern is that the Bible is um, every book, you know, all 66 books are written in some form or fashion in their variety of genres. All of them are written as long format texts, you know, and um, you know, even the Psalms, I would say, even though they're sort of shorter, any even the shortest psalm is longer than the longest tweet you know what i mean yeah. like so uh so that's my concern i think we have to um settle into the practice of reading long format texts in order to undo some of the damage that uh the, the social media age in particular but the digital age as a whole has done to the way we think about reading and understanding the stuff that we're reading uh, particularly if we're going to grow accustomed to reading the Bible. Um, so there you go. That's, that's the whole section on scripture, I think. How, how do we, we detoxify ourselves from the addiction to shock value and short format? And so, I mean, like I would be embarrassed to tell you how many hours I spend on Instagram a week. <laughs> Me too. I spend a lot of time on Instagram too. I get it. Yeah. How do we, how do we transition out? I mean, like somebody's listening to this right now and they're like, I'm ready for a change. Where do they start? How does it look? Yeah, I think it has to do with uh, practices and habits and disciplines. Mm. You know, I think good intentions um, get us nowhere when they're not coupled with practices and habits. Amen. Uh, and in particular, I think it has to do with limitations when it comes to digital technologies. I, I think that, what everyone in the digital age should do, and I, by everyone, I, I 
wholeheartedly believe this. I mean, everyone in the digital age uh, needs to have in writing in some form or fashion um, set limitations for their use of digital technology. So again, I'll borrow from Andy Crouch here. He's got this great principle, um, which we've applied in our home. He says that you should treat your, not just your smartphone, but all digital technologies, uh, particularly things that allow you to go online, like even like your iPad, let's say, um, treat them as you would young children. And what he means by that is they should go to bed before you go to bed and they should wake up after you wake up um, or you should wake up before they wake up. What he means by that is don't let your smartphone and your social media feed and online stuff be the last thing you see and experience before you go to sleep. Put your phone to bed before you go to bed. So put your phone to bed and do something else before you sleep, you know, uh, put your phone to bed and read a book, put your phone to bed and have a conversation with uh, your spouse or your roommate or a friend or whatever, you know, put your phone to bed and um, I, I don't know, you know, go, go for an evening stroll before you, whatever it is, do something that's not digital and then uh, wake up before your phone, meaning as you sort of, you know, groggily open your eyes in the morning, don't reach over to your nightstand and grab for your smartphone immediately to check your email or your Facebook or Instagram or whatever, which so many of us do. Instead, uh, wake up and do something non-digital, you know, for the Christian, it might be reading the scriptures, making yourself a cup of coffee. It might be going for a walk. It might be singing a song. It might be reading a book. It might be reading the newspaper, but like an actual newspaper, you know, like <laughs> right. what, whatever it is, do something non-digital before your phone wakes up. And so uh, that's something we've put into place in our home. Um, you know, there are pragmatic things you can do for that. I would suggest to, to everybody, don't have your phone on your nightstand. I just think that physically, you know, the physicality of it is the physicality of the temptation is like too, it's far too great to overcome. You know, if your phone is within reach before you go to bed or, or after you wake up, you're just, you're going to be prone to reaching over and grabbing it. You know, it's an addictive tool. Sure. And, you know, not having your phone on your nightstand means that you are putting your phone down in a place that isn't by your bed. Meaning you're setting yourself up to put your phone away um, and then having to walk to your bed, which gives you some space and some room and some time to think, you know, I'm going to lay down and, and read a book, you know, or read the Bible or have a conversation. So there you go. Those are just a couple of thoughts. There's so many more, but um, that's one that's been really helpful for us. So one of the things that I've noticed on, uh, on social media that has been very um hotly contested is the you know these political and and even racial discussions that seem yep. to break out on um on social media that seem so anti-productive hmm. um how do we create an environment in the, in the analog world for these kinds of, of important discussions and and particularly i, I mean obviously as a uh, as a minority in, in America, you've kind of lived this. How, how are you creating real life experiences where we can grow together in diversity? That's a great question. It's a really timely question, obviously, as we're recording this, you know, in mid-June. 
on the heels of the George Floyd tragedy and just national um, uprising and upheaval and protests, both peaceful and violent and all those things and just the complexity of all of that. Um, Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say is racial injustice and brokenness in our nation uh, is way too important and complex to allow its final word to be spoken on social media. Amen. And um, for, for too many people, I think that's the way they see social media, that what they read on Twitter or on Instagram or on Facebook or whatever is the final word. And what that does for us is it, um, it handicaps us in, one, extending grace to one another, uh, and it totally um, nullifies uh, any potential for real, nuanced, necessary conversation. Hmm. You know, if we're just trading barbs against each other in 280 characters, that's going to get us nowhere. And in particular, the algorithms that, that Twitter uses, it's just keeping you in an echo chamber you're going to see 90% of people who support you on your feed. And then it's going to feed you like 10% of people meant to provoke you who disagree with you. And you're, if that's all, I'm not saying don't use Twitter. I use Twitter uh, quite a bit and I enjoy it for, for what it is. But if you're using Twitter or, or any social media platform as sort of the final word, like what is spoken here paints the full picture of what's happening in our country and what people need to do, then man, you're gravely mistaken. It's that that's not the final word. The final word needs to be had. I would suggest in real life with real people that, you know, you know, with real people who are hurting with real people who are fearful with real people who are confused and to have those conversations, not in 280 characters, but to have them in extended, uh, and by in-person, at least right now, I don't mean like physically in-person, right. although some of the restrictions are lifting, but in real life, you know, whether it's on Zoom or over the phone or whatever, um, I think more of us need to do that. I think more of us need to s- stop spending so much time scrolling and spend more time um, extending a listening ear to the real people in our lives that we actually know. That's uh that's very wise. And, and I agree. I, I think that there is something to be said for being able to see and experience someone else's reaction to the comments you make. And, and I, I feel like uh, and my prayer is really that the church can become a place where those conversations can happen. I, I mean, don't you think that this is um, one of the major missions of the church is the diversity of the body of Christ? Yeah, absolutely. I, this The time that we're in, is um, not unique. This is, in my opinion, this is um, sort of a moment of explosion uh, uh, of a, a, a situation and a brokenness that's been prevalent in, in our country and globally um, for many generations. And we have these moments every now and then. And I'm hopeful that this moment will be a moment of real change uh, in the hearts and minds of people first and foremost, and systematically 
in society. And, and there are so many complexities there. So I want to be careful how I say that, but you're right as the follow as followers of Jesus, uh, this is a part of what it means to follow Jesus faithfully in our world is to, um, uh, to, to fight toward the reconciliation of all things and all people. And what that means is a part of that uh, demands equity. It demands equity amongst different people. It doesn't demand that we all become the same. What it right. demands is that in diversity, we become one, you know? And um, so, yeah, this is an important, it's an important battle. Uh, but we also have to remember the words of Paul, you know, that ultimately the battle is not against flesh and blood, you know, but against the powers and principalities. And there is something going on beneath the surface um, that we have to pay attention to as followers of Jesus and uh, just follow Jesus faithfully in this time and live and lead with courage and conviction. And that has to be done in person. Uh, you, you can't do that. Uh, you can't do that uh, without personal engagement and transformation of the heart. And so uh, I think that that's a, another um, really important thing to note as we think about this as a, um, this writing as, an, as a resource for this time in this season. So uh, Jay, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk through all this. I know my listeners are going to want to connect with you. Um, if, if they're interested in learning more about uh, kind of you and your writing, where's the best place for them to start? Yeah. Thanks, Tony. Um, it's been a great conversation and uh, I've enjoyed it immensely. Um, yeah. The best place to find me is probably, I have a little website. Uh, it's just jkimthinks.com. Um, and then that's also uh, me on um, Twitter and Instagram as well. Just jkimthinks and um, yeah, happy to interact with anybody who wants to chat about anything. And if anything that I put out there is helpful to you, then I'm really grateful. Yeah. So the last question I always love to ask my guests, it's a, it's a advice question, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, I want to challenge you to go back and give yourself one piece of advice. And in this particular case, I'm going to take you back to, uh, uh your first day pastoring a church. <laughs> if you could go back and tell Jay uh, one piece of advice, what would you say? Oh man, that would have been 2004. I was in my early, early to mid twenties. Um, hmm. I think what I would tell myself back then is to um, learn to go slow and steady rather uh, than, um, you know, sort of the fast, aggressive, get it done sort of tendency that's a part of my personality. Go slow and steady because um, character always outpaces uh, giftedness and skill. Mm. That's what I would tell myself. I think in the last 16, 17 years of ministry, uh, I have had to take... Um, the difficult path of learning that truth that it doesn't matter how gifted or skilled I am or gifted or skilled anybody is character will always outpace any amount of gift or skill uh, that the develop, the development of character, Christian character is always a slow and steady process. It's not possible to microwave it. 
And because of that, you know, often our ambitions get the best of us. And I think that when we try to lead with giftedness and skill, that's when so many of us uh, get into trouble if our character is underdeveloped. So uh, by God's grace, he's kept me out of, you know, really hot waters and big mistakes (laughs) that I could have potentially made. But certainly I've had moments in my life of ministry where I've just said, man, I think I'm gifted and skilled in this. I'm just going to go for it. And my character just wasn't there yet, you know? So I think that's what I would tell myself. That's uh sounds like a whole lot of wisdom and probably worth the whole podcast right there. That was very good. So Jay, thank you so much for your time today and for being so generous. I truly appreciate it. No, thank you, Tony. Appreciate you and your work and uh, you having me on. Thanks so much. Again, wasn't that just such an incredible conversation? I love the way he talked about transcendence versus relevance and style over substance and so many things that don't just apply to the church, but also just apply to the way I parent and the way I live my life and the way that I work and try to connect with Christ. So again, I hope that this was a valuable conversation. I found it was full of rich dialogue and Jay's a great guy to talk to. I really enjoyed our time together. If you're ready to become part of the community, um, do me a favor, text the word reclaim to 66866. Uh, Leave us a rating or review on whatever platform you listen on and please share the podcast. It helps get the word out about what God is doing. And until next time, keep leaning in to what it means to reclaim good practices for faith and life.